Well, good morning, family. How are you today? It's good to see you here. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers. If you're new, welcome. If you're old, welcome. We're just glad to be together. And for family joining us online, we love you, we love you, we love you. And so we're in a series, What Happens When You Die? Because as of last survey, death wins 100% of the time. What do they say? The only two things certain in life are death and taxes. And I found that to be true. So today we're continuing that conversation. Let me give you a quick snapshot of where we've been and where we're going. And then I want to show you a list of resources because today's topic is one worthy of additional study. But last week we began by looking at the six options. You remember the chart we put up. If you did not or were unable to be here, I invite you to go back and listen or watch the message because it sets up and frames the entire conversation. Next week, we're going to, on Mother's Day, talk about heaven. And I believe there is great value in celebrating our moms. I also believe it's incredibly important to get excited about where we're going one day. Amen? So we're going to do that next Sunday. And then in two weeks, we will have a question and answer Sunday. Now, don't get worried. We're not going to have microphones where people come forward and ask things on the spot. I couldn't handle that, and we don't want to deal with that. But if you have questions that are on your mind or that come up through this series, you can email us at office at clearcreekcoc.org or you can jot it down, hand it to me on a piece of paper. And time permitting, I will try to answer as best we can from Scripture the questions that you have. But today we're dealing with perhaps one of, if not the touchiest topics of all, the question of hell. What about it? And what do we do with it? Now, I am indebted to a number of great scholars today, some of whom, uh, John Piper, John Stott, John Ortberg, Tim Keller, those four have been very helpful in forming some of my thoughts today. But in addition to those, there's a list of other resources I would encourage you to look into. Take a picture of this if you want. But these are some other wonderful resources on the topic that we are addressing today, which is hell. And I want to begin with this very important question. Are you ready? Would a good God send people to hell? Are there people who will go to hell? Are there people who are lost? And I'm going to ask that this morning we take this topic very thoughtfully and deliberately. And just a heads up, this is not going to be one of the more lighthearted messages because this is a very serious topic that deserves serious consideration for everyone who is living today. So I want to begin, though, maybe with a more personal question than just would a good God send people generically to hell. But here's the real question. Should people, should you, should I, should people be afraid of hell? Should we be afraid of it? Not too long ago, a friend of mine's 16-year-old got that wonderful piece of plastic that bequeaths to him the right to get into a vehicle and drive around. Now, that's an exciting opportunity. If you're the kid, it's a terrifying one if you're the adult. Can I get an uh uh-huh from anyone here? I mean, I've seen how I drove when I was 16, and you've seen. Now, imagine someone receives the right to this incredible, powerful machine, and this kid comes to a parent one day and says, Mom, Dad, I'm so excited about driving, but listen, I don't think that seatbelts are all that big of a deal. And I'm not real concerned with following the speed limit. I think those are more suggestions on how to begin your speed versus the limits. 
And I think drinking and driving is a great idea. And in fact, while I'm driving, I have mastered the art of texting, watching YouTube videos, checking my social media feed, all while driving. Now question, what parent would say, that's a good idea? Or imagine your child comes to you one day and says, folks, I have decided I'm going to dedicate my life to smoking. From the first moment that I get up to the moment I go to bed at night, my goal is to inhale as much nicotine as possible. Now, I know some people say it's bad for you, but I'm young, I'm healthy, I've never seen this be a problem for me, so why not? Do you know any good parent who'd let that slide? When it comes to things that potentially can kill or destroy your life, good parents speak clearly and consistently on the topic. And our good God is no different from any good parent. For when we see someone heading towards destruction, good parents ring the alarm bell loud and clear because no good parent wants to see their child harmed or harm someone else. And when it comes to where we spend eternity, our good God does not want anyone to be separated from Him, but to be with Him forever. Can we just agree on that this morning? And so today, I need to begin with this. You have been given a soul. You didn't make it. You didn't ask for it. You can't destroy it, but you've got it. And you've been given a will, the ability to make decisions to make choices about what you do. And part of what that means is that you cannot evade responsibility for your life. We live in such a therapeutic world where it's all about how things make us feel so that we don't often use words like good and evil in everyday conversation. And we ignore the reality that we are becoming people for eternity. The decisions today will make you who you will be for eternity. We are all aiming a moral trajectory for our lives, either becoming more like God or becoming more like the devil in the way that we live. You are becoming a person formed by character. Now, I know some of you are sitting next to someone and you're like, no, they are not being formed with character. They are a character. And maybe that's true. But you are are someone whose character is being formed and the most important thing that's happening around the world and in this room today is the character that you are forming. Consider this, every good thing and every wicked thing that has ever happened in the history of the world from humans was a result of their character. So the conversation today is very important. So should people... Be afraid of hell. Yes. Friends, we should be more terrified of hell than what happens to the stock market, our health, our finances, our relationships, anything else. What should terrify us more than anything is the possibility and what will be the real reality for numerous people that they would be separated from God because of their choice and decisions for eternity. Hell should absolutely terrify us. Because we live in a world that doesn't think much about it, we're going to talk about it this morning. Now, you know, if you've been around for any time, I love to laugh. I am a happy person. I tend to be a very positive person. Life is fun, and humans are funny to look at and talk about. Can I get an oh yeah? I mean, have you seen yourselves? Have you said, well, you've seen me. 
We're funny. I love to laugh and to joke. And I've got to be honest, I think sometimes the way we've talked about hell has created unnecessary fear for some of us. Or it's warped our understanding so some of us should have more fear than we do. So today, I'm going to, as best I can from Scripture, help us see what this reality is. And then I want us to look at some good news. Do you want some good news today? Well, I want some, so I'll do it for you, okay? Because what I want us to do is to make sure that we do not minimize hell, but we understand it so that we will be ready to share the good news with each other and with those who need to know Jesus. And so I want to begin with this very obvious but important point that hell is real. Now, we're going to look at four key images that are used through Scripture for hell, and then I'm going to end with some good news. And this is what's so important. You need to know this. Do you know who in Scripture spoke most about hell more than anyone else? Jesus Christ. So if Jesus tells us about heaven and we trust him, whatever he says about hell, we should also trust as well. And these are the four images that Jesus uses more than any others to describe hell. Go ahead and put these up on screen. These are the four, and we're going to begin with this first one. The word there is Gehenna. Everyone say Gehenna. Gehenna shows up on the scene centuries before Jesus. Actually, in Second Chronicles, we learn about it. There is this wicked king of Israel named Ahaz, and we're told about him this. He burned sacrifices to Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnon and sacrificed his sons in the fire. As you can imagine, this was considered detestable by God and anyone with a conscience. So much so that centuries later, another king, a good king named Josiah, shows up. And we're told this in 2 Kings chapter 23. Josiah desecrated, meaning destroyed, Topheth, which was in the valley of Ben-Hinnon, so no one could use it to sacrifice his son or daughter in the fire of Molech. Now, Molech and Baal are two pagan gods who received child sacrifice as part of the worship. By the way, any culture that will exterminate its children for the convenience or blessing of the parents is going down the wrong path. Amen? We'll get into that this summer, by the way. Because God's heart is for life for all, now and eternity. And so because of this, God, through this king, Josiah, destroys a place that was known for its detestable, vile acts, and it is destroyed. And so this area that is actually in the southwest portion of the city of Jerusalem became, because it was good for nothing else, the public dump. It's where the garbage, the refuse, the waste was taken, and it became a place where the flies ruled, the flies reigned. In fact, the Hebrew term for this place is Gehinan, and the Greek term for it was Gehenna. That's the word most used in the Bible for hell. In fact, it's used 12 times, 11 of which by Jesus himself. In fact, look at this passage in Matthew where Jesus uses it. He says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell, Gehenna. That's the word that he's using there. This is the word used most often to describe hell. Now, People sometimes wonder, if God is good and everything he creates is good, why would he create hell? After all, that seems to be opposite of his character. Now, this is a really important point, and I need you to listen carefully. Hell was not part of God's original creation or intention. In the parable of the sheep and the goats that we read earlier... 
The king says to the righteous this in Matthew 25, 34. He says, take your inheritance to the sheep, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. And then, in contrast to that, he speaks to the goats, those who have run away, who have disobeyed, who have no heart for the shepherd, for the king. He says to them, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, do you notice the distinction? Well, let me show it to you this way. Notice that what God intends for us, for humanity, is his kingdom. That is what was created for all people. That was God's heart. And hell was created for the devil and his angels. It was not intended for us. It was intended for a place for those who rebel and who choose sin over the saving grace of Jesus Christ. Now, sometimes you'll hear the devil described as Beelzebub. Have you ever heard the word Beelzebub? By, by the way, just, just, just raise your hands. Let's see. How many of you have heard this term before? Keep them up real high. I'd like for you to look around at the age of those whose hands are up. Okay? It's not a common term. But the word Beelzebub actually plays into this title of Gehenna. The word Beel comes from the word Baal, that God. And the word Baal means Lord. Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Why? What covers dung heaps and junkyards and burning grounds? Flies. This is a term Jesus uses to describe the devil. It is a a term used to mock the enemy. Yes, devil, right now, for some you are called the prince of this world, but there is coming a day when all that you will rule is hell, which is nothing more than the dung heap It is the cast out, the refuse. Is it good news to anyone else that the devil doesn't win in the end? He'll only be the Lord of the flies. This is the first image that Scripture gives that Jesus shows us. The second one is outer darkness. Everybody say, outer darkness. Now this phrase comes when Jesus once again is talking about using a parable of a wicked servant. He says this in Matthew 25. And throw that worthless servant outside into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, pause there for a moment. Notice he doesn't just say darkness, but he says outer darkness. Why? Because outer darkness is where the goodness of God is not. It is the place outside of the presence and the goodness of God. How does the scripture begin? How does the Bible begin? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth and God's spirit is over the dark waters and God comes into the story and we're told these words. And God said, let there be what? Let there be what? Light. He gives us as the very first gift Light. Light is life. It is joy. It is contentment. It is safety. It is security. Every morning when the sun comes up, how many of us are glad that the sun came up? I am. I think about the moments growing up that I was most terrified. It was as a child in the dark. I would watch. I've shared before. I'd watch Scooby-Doo and one of the terrifying characters would keep me up at night. Don't judge. But the darkness... The place apart from God, to be cut off. To be in outer darkness is to be where God is not, and a soul can be where God is not. John chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, Jesus tells us this. He says, light has come into, come into the world, 
But everyone loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds may be exposed. Listen, I don't want my deeds exposed. I want to hide in the darkness. That's the natural inclination of the soul. And what is so interesting is if you, like me, have ever done something you shouldn't do, the first time you do it, you feel bad about it. You kind of go, oh, that's called your conscience. But have you noticed that over time, if you do the same bad thing, your conscience becomes dull and it no longer bothers you? That is what it means to slowly move into outer darkness where the goodness of God that woos you back begins to have less and less sway over your heart. It less and less gnawing. Can you imagine becoming a person or a being that lies and hates, hoards, judges, covets, lusts, hurts, gossips without ceasing, without the slightest concern that you're doing anything wrong at all. That is outer darkness. And you don't have to wait till you die to bring hell into your life or outer darkness into your life, do you? It is Gehenna. It's the place outside the dump. It is outer darkness. The third image from this passage from Jesus is this third one, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you notice what he says again? Matthew chapter 25, where he says, And throw that worthless servant outside into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, this phrase often confuses us. Let me tell you what this does not mean. This does not mean that there are people in hell who are going, why did I choose this? God, let me out. Oh, why? By the way, just as a side note, there's a story Jesus tells, a parable of a rich man and Lazarus. Are any of you familiar with this parable? Just let me see some hands. Look it up later. Here's what you'll notice. The rich man who is in torment never asks to be set free of the torment himself. So that's not what this is talking about, that people are begging to be let loose and God going, no, it's too late for you. That's not the image. God's heart is that no one should be separated ever. And his heart does not change for people just because the clock stops ticking. There is a consequence, but God's heart is still that he loves all people. That's good news, but it's even more tragic when people say, I'm gone, I'm done from you. So what does it mean if it doesn't mean that they want out and they can't get out? It simply means that hell is where God gives people over to their sin. Have you heard that phrase before? Perhaps in Romans chapter 1 when Paul talking about God giving us over to our desires, that there's a point where you say, I want this, I want this, I want this, and God finally says, okay. That you are separating yourself from God and he gives you over to this thing that you want so much. But now that you have it, it doesn't do what you thought it would do. Instead of becoming a bigger person, you become a smaller person turned in on yourself because you desire this thing. Let me give you an example or two. How many of you at Christmas watch this wonderful cartoon called The Grinch Who Stole Christmas? Anyone? Yeah. What do we know about the Grinch's heart? It's little bitty, right? It's turned in on himself. It is selfish, self-centered, and because of that, small. But when the Grinch begins to give, looking outward, not focused on himself, what happens to his heart? It gets bigger, it grows. The person who is focused on themselves, the person who lives only for self-gratification becomes a very small being like a black hole in human form sucking in on itself. 
I think one of the greatest pictures of this actually comes from media and literature. How many of you remember the movies, The Lord of the Rings, or read the books, Lord of the Rings? You've got this character named Gollum. You remember this ugly-looking mug right here? And what is he always wanting? My precious. Now, I did not tell my wife I was going to do that because she would have rebuked me for it beforehand. I love you. He wants this little ring, his precious, and it's a curious phrase, isn't it? That something seemingly so insignificant becomes the supreme focus of his life, so much so that he goes from being a human-like character to something unrecognizable. That when given over to this passion or desire, given enough time, it warps him into something unhuman. Now, a friend of mine pointed out something I'd never noticed before. When you watch the movies, he begins at a point where he can wear the ring and he enjoys it, but he has come to a point where he desires the ring, but he can't wear it. It harms him, pains him. Even the thing he desired once now cannot fulfill This is what it means to have weeping and gnashing of teeth where you are eternally and completely dissatisfied with everything. Nothing's good. Do you know anyone like that today? Don't raise your hand. We're nothing satisfied. Nothing's good. Everything's bad. Everything's something. That's just a hint of what Jesus seems to be telling us here. And this is not how it is intended to be. Now, Here's the fourth and final image, then we're going to get into some good news. But this one we need to talk about. Because this is, I believe, the most common picture we think of when we think of hell. We think of fire. Again, this is one that gets misused in some big, big ways. I can remember when I was a kid, someone saying, here's how to think of hell. Have you ever burnt your finger or your hand? And I'm like, well, I was a kid, yeah. Now imagine that all over your body, forever and ever throughout eternity, and that is hell. And I remember thinking, that sounds horrible. And the person's like, yes, it is. Come, get baptized. And that was sort of the message, wasn't it? (laughs) Flames go out. But here's what I need you to understand. That is not, that is not biblically sound. Here's what I mean. When the Bible talks about flames, it is talking metaphorically and figuratively. Hold on, that's not actually good news. But throughout Scripture, the Bible used metaphor and figurative language to explain things that you and I have no concept of or ability to understand because we've never experienced it. After all, how do you describe heaven, a perfect place, to beings who have never lived in a perfect place? Or how do you Describe hell, a horrible, tormenting place where there is no good for beings who have experienced at least some good in life. So the Bible uses metaphor and images to explain this. Let me give you an example. Imagine going back a thousand years and trying to describe to people what an airplane is. What would you do? Well, you'd use ideas or images they are familiar with to explain something that they're not familiar with. So, well, it's like a bird but covered in metal, and you have to like be swallowed by the bird, and you sit in the stomach of the bird, and you fly to where you're going, and then when you get there, you get out of the bird, and they they say, how? And you say, well, okay, the, the illustration just broke down really badly. You can't explain it well, perfectly, but you use metaphors. In fact, John 
the apostle in the book of Revelation gives us some of this. He talks about how you and I, the righteous in heaven, will be wearing white linen. Now, here's what you need to understand. That is not referring to the fashion style of heaven, that we will all just be wearing white clothes wherever we go all day, every day. You say, Josh, why do you believe that? Well, it's because the next thing he says, by the way, this is Revelation 19 and verse 8. He gives a parenthetical explanation. He says, fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, imagine having a perfectly clean conscience. And always doing, saying, and thinking the right things all the time. That's an image of being covered in clean white linen. So the Bible uses imagery. I love what C.S. Lewis says. He says this to describe the metaphors of Scripture. He says, There is no need to be worried by fastidious people who try to make the Christian hope of heaven ridiculous by saying they don't want to, quote, spend eternity playing harps. He said the answer to such people is that if they cannot understand books written for grown-ups, they should not talk about them. He goes on to say this, Scriptural imagery is, of course, a merely symbolical attempt to express the inexpressible. People who take these symbols literally might as well think that when Christ told us to be like doves, He meant that we were to lay eggs. What's the point? This is an image to describe something else. Now, before we go... It's much worse than fire. Fire is symbolic of complete and total destruction. Fire was generally used to destroy something that was offensive to God's holiness. Uh, So we have sin sacrifices for the people of Israel. Something was destroyed to symbolize what was wrong and for God's judgment. And so here's a question that often comes up. People will ask, well, wouldn't it be more compassionate to just destroy such people instead of being tormented or being in hell? And some Christians, such as John Stott and Edward Fudge, men I greatly respect, believe that, yes, the human soul will not go forever, but will be annihilated, is what they say. That souls will be destroyed at some point while in hell. But it is not clear in Scripture that the soul is the kind of thing that can be destroyed. I don't know if it will go on forever or if it will be snuffed out. You say, well, if it's snuffed out, how can that be an eternal punishment? Well, you are eternally separated from God, are you not? Now, I'm not sure which one it is. But what we do know is simply this. It is a place where we are not what we were intended to be And we are broken down more and more. C.S. Lewis elsewhere describes it this way. He says, at least in nature, all things simply change states. They are not truly destroyed. So you take a log and you go out and you build a bonfire in the fall. I love bonfires. Anyone else? Pyros with me? Yeah. You go out there. Now that log, you light it on fire. And what happens to it? It changes state. It becomes flame. It becomes smoke. It becomes ash. It changes form from what it was into something else. And the question is, what would a human soul be like when it changes from its earthly state into the heavenly state? What will we be transformed into, church? The scriptures call this being glorified, something bigger and better than you and I can imagine. But what does it look like for the human soul to be changed, to be turned in on itself for eternity, to be consumed in the fires? I want us to take very seriously the reality that God does not joke around. He wants all to turn from their wickedness so that they may not experience separation from God for eternity. One final question before we get into some good news here is, 
Well, it's hell then made up of physical fire and brimstone. Again, no, it is much worse than that, as we've already described. Now, some of us will say, well, Josh, why couldn't it be a literal fire? Let me just give you one real quick thing. Did you notice Jesus described hell as a place of outer darkness? Do you remember that? You cannot have literal darkness and literal fire together. Because what does fire produce? Light. These are images to describe something much worse than simply absence of light and heat. And it's for this reason that Jesus, more than anyone else in Scripture, says, take seriously the formation of your soul, the character of your life, the bend of where you're going, because there are two realities, heaven and hell, and you only have one of two destinations, friend. Now, who's ready for some good news? Here's the good news. Hell is not the last word from God. In the last verses of the last chapter of the last book of the Bible, we are told this beautiful promise. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. God's will for every human being is not death. It is not hell. No one hates hell more than Jesus Christ. No one has done more to keep you from hell than Jesus Christ. And no one even now interceding before the Father is doing more to ensure you will be with Him than Jesus Christ. Is that good news to anyone else? And there's this great little verse in the Old Testament, 2 Samuel 14, 14. I love this verse, this promise. It says, like water spilled on the ground which cannot be recovered, we must die. But God does not take away life. Instead, look at this. He devises ways so that a banished person may not remain estranged from him. God devises ways. He stays up at night. He racks his brain. He sends people to you. He shows you through the beauty of creation. He calls this to your attention through the brevity of life and the question of why are we even here and the eventuality that someday we will die. He does all of this to wake us up, to call us to Him because God does not want any banished person to remain estranged. His heart is that we would come to the saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And He does it ultimately through the work of Jesus, doesn't He? He sent His Son, who lived a perfect life, taught us the perfect way to live, died a perfect death, and on the cross experienced in ways I can't imagine the weight of sin, the taste of hell, the pain of what it must be like for a soul. And He took it on for you and me, and He went to the grave And on the third day, he rose again. And now he invites us to come. He says, I have tasted death so that you do not have to. This is God's final word. So if anybody wants another way, they can repent of their sin. They can turn from their own selfishness and turn to God. They can say, no more me, but all to thee. In the waters of baptism, I will be forgiven and receive the forgiveness of sins and rise 
to walk with God. If you've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins, friends, I would beg you, don't leave today without having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Nothing else matters in eternity than your relationship with Jesus. And I know when we talk about this, this is a hard topic because I know for so many of us, we have friends that we love, we have children we love, we have parents we love, and we're like, but what about? You need to understand that feeling that you have for people you love is just a taste of what Jesus Christ feels for all of us because his love for you and your friends and your children and your parents and your neighbors was so great, it didn't simply cause him to want something to change, but he left heaven and went to a cross for you and me. So whatever you feel on this topic, understand your Father in heaven understands and has moved heaven and earth, confronting hell itself so that no one would have to go there. And so, this is what he teaches. Next week we're going to talk about heaven because I hope to see every one of you there. And here's the good news you can if you trust in Jesus Christ. It is to God's glory. And the whole church said, let's stand. And let's say a prayer together, and then we'll sing this final song. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we come to you now thanking you that you did not leave us to the destination we were hell-bent on running toward. Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us, for offering life, and for your invincible love that called you to the cross where you defeated Satan, sin, and death. And now the junk heap of hell is not the destination that we have to fear. But we get to look forward to eternity with Jesus. Lord, I do pray for every friend in this room, for those who have not yet said yes to Christ. I pray that they will turn, that they will receive forgiveness in Jesus, receiving you in the waters of baptism. And for any of my friends in here who are saved, but they're living as though they're hell-bound, I pray that they would repent because you are gracious to forgive. I thank you for forgiving me, not just years ago, but this week. As I know you will this coming week, year, decade, should I live that long, may you, Lord Jesus, be glorified in our lives. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.